It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. A month ago, the group Identity Europa, what I would term a gross hipster take on white supremacism and neo-Nazism, got completely nuked by an online publication known as Unicorn Riot. What they did was dump a series of 770,000 messages from the Identity Europa Discord, Slack, and other chat channels, exposing the group's attempts at grooming its image since the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. The plan was to go mainstream and be a player in American politics. Identity Europa tried to rebrand as simply pro-white, decrying their neo-Nazi labels. I think that would be a major shift, yes, if we could finally start having a dialogue and not uh, one of these, oh, we need to talk about race, but let's just bring on a, a person of European heritage who's going to sit there as a stool pigeon, as a yes man. But inside the chats reveals that was total BS. The unicorn right dump is an example of how people are trying to fight back online against a growing, radical, popular, neo-Nazi, extremist, far-right, to stop things like the ideologies that spawned the Christchurch terror attacks from ever happening. Today, we have Freddy Martinez, a guy known within hacking circles, who's a member of the Unicorn Riot team that took down Identity Europa to tell us what it's like tracking Nazis online. Well, thanks, Freddy, for coming on the show today. So tell me, what is Unicorn Riot? Uh, that's a good question. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized um, alternative media collective. So we cover everything from like social justice issues to environmental issues uh, to racism. So we focus very heavily on doing journalism that um, other people aren't doing, but we take a sort of very rigorous journalistic stance and we... We, we work very hard to uphold, like, very tough journalistic standards on ourselves. Um, so, yeah, that's how we approach media, and that's how we report. So Unicorn Ride, I mean, it's a very interesting model. You know, you're a decentralized group. Like, what, what's the ethos exactly? I think we try to tell stories that, like, most people aren't covering. Our efforts around the code access pipeline and telling the story about the struggles against that came in a time where other people weren't doing that. Um, the Intercept did a huge series about private and military contractors working to effectively, you know, call that those protests like a threat to national security. Um, and so when, when we were, when Unicorn Riot was doing that reporting, our ethos was like, we're going to tell a story about like, not only like land struggles, indigenous struggles, environmentalism, um, and like, you know, civil and social social rights. But we did it at a time where no one else was doing it. So I think our, our ethos is just to go after stories that no one else is going to cover, um, uh, you know, and we've been really, really successful at doing that. And you also seem to be a collective of a lot of different types of people. Yeah. You know, you have developers, you seem to have journalists, people like yourself, everyone's sort of involved in this. It, it I mean... For lack of a better reference, it seems almost like a professionalized anonymous in an interesting way. We all consider ourselves journalists in different capacities, technologists, web developers, video editors. We all collectively edit each other's stories. We all collectively fact check each other. So the whole point is just to, yeah, I mean, what's been incredible about this reporting is that it doesn't take a 50-person research team. It really just 
you know, kind of bootstrap DIY independent journalism can have really impactful results. So, so it's really interesting to have seen that as we've done these stories. Yeah, so you guys came onto my radar as someone who, who does a lot of reporting on the far right when you did a huge Iron March dump of neo-Nazis and their chat logs about a year ago. And, you know, you, you exposed a bunch of them. And then you kind of did it again with a group called Identity Europa. So why don't you tell me, how did you come about dumping, what was it, 770,000 messages of this group? Uh, so Identity Europa is one of the largest neo-Nazi groups in um, the U.S. They were one of the catalysts for organizing the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, so we had known them for a long time, and uh, we've had sources, many sources, um, come approach us about different types of chats that they were trying to get published. Um, so th- in this case, we had about, yeah, 770,000 far-right chat messages that we published, as well as like Slack channels and various other bits of information that were given to us, like uh, unlisted YouTube channels and things like that. Um, so it was, a, it was a, one of our largest stories, um, but it also comes in the time where we have had our reporting used uh, for very large lawsuits about sort of far-right violence as well. I mean, also, this group was trying to sort of groom itself as a much more palatable version of, you know, we're just pro-white, you know, it's not that bad. We don't hate other races or anything. We're not Nazis. But this chat log dump basically showed that that was bullshit. So the messaging is really important to them. They um, are closely aligned with other far-right groups. Uh, there's one in Europe called, uh, I think it's called Generation Identity, um, GI. And because Europe has very specific hate speech laws after, you know, the denazification of, of after World War II, they're very, very careful about their images. And so Identity Europa considers themselves very closely aligned with GI. Um, and so they're very careful about the things that they say. Um, they say things like, uh, I mean, they are careful on their main chat server about don't, you know, explicitly um, call for violence. But their executive director, Patrick Casey, would say repeatedly, like, if you do something else on a different chat server, or I just don't want to hear about it. So a lot of it is just kind of like grooming this sort of hipster Nazi, like, as long as you wear khakis and a dress shirt and, and things like that, then it's fine. Um, so a lot of what they focused on really... Um, the majority of their chats were about like presenting themselves as just sort of what they call, they, they self-describe as an identitarian movement, which is just like another dog whistle of essentially white power. The other thing is this, this, this chat dump also exposed that there were, what, like seven members of the military that were involved mm-hmm. with this group, as well as some people in law enforcement? What's surprising is not that there are people in the military or in law enforcement or anything like that connected with these groups. What kind of is surprising is just like the public reaction. Um, the public will sometimes, you know, email us like, hey, I think my girlfriend is dating a Nazi. Um, so we were surprised that there were, um, you know, law enforcement and military officials. Um, there were like EMTs. There was a, a school teacher who was exposed today uh, of being part of these groups. There was a GOP field officer who who worked for uh, the governor's reaction campaign those things like 
those names in particular are maybe a little bit surprising, but it's just the organizational level of just like how professional some of these individuals are. That's what's really shocking, just like how ingrained into like everyday society these people are. Also, they, they tried to, I mean, they really tried to make it seem like they weren't major, you know, they weren't engaging with major neo-Nazi literature or anything like that. But then they had this big pamphleteering game that they were playing where they were dropping tons of Identity Europa pamphlets around areas all over the U.S. And they called it Project Siege. And we know Siege is code for James Mason's neo-Nazi insurgency Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Siege is a book uh, very similar to the Turner Diaries, which inspired Timothy McVeigh to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Um, so, so Siege is a well-known book that's revered by lots of neo-Nazi groups like Identity Europa, like Adam Waffen Division. But the entire idea with Siege is that you create random acts of violence to incite a, a race war. So when they call flyering Project Siege, they have a private literature server where they're, you know, read uh, Jared Taylor or read books about the protocols of the Others of Zion, which is a major conspiracy theory book about how Jews secretly run the world. And and like and then Patrick Casey will be on their videos talking about, well, I don't recommend this book for Identity Europa, but if you read it on your own, like so be it. So these like all of these sort of intersections of these books that call for violence, but also like these books that call for like Jews secretly run the world, this is like mainstream sort of Nazi propaganda. And then they just try to like layer it with like oh, if you want to read that on your free time, go ahead. I just don't want to hear about it. And that's really how Identity Europa functions. I mean, here's the other thing. Freddie, you're obviously well-known in the hacking community as well. It's how we first met when I was hosting the show Cyber War. <laughs> how did you, how did Unicorn Riot get access to all this stuff? <laughs> um, so the Unicorn Riot had, had their own individual sources. Um, I came to the project because I ran into a colleague who was uh, helping Unicorn Riot, and they were, you know, writing these very basic, you know, apps to help uh, the journalists do their research. Um, eventually, we turned that into what's now the Discord Leaks platform. Um, so we have a group of, you know, anonymous developers who volunteer their time to make these chat logs readable and searchable and viewable. Um, so over like the last year, people have dedicated, you know, hours and hours and hours of their time uh, to make it so that uh, some, like we have released over a million, 1.7 million chat messages of the far right content. Um, and like, how does anyone parse that, right? How does anyone read all that? And so um, one of the ways that I got involved with this work was through making that easier to do. Um, and then once you've read 500 million chat messages, uh, then you can like, oh, I actually understand this. I'm going to do some reporting on it. So that's how I fell into it. Yeah, I was going to say that the whole database is actually more searchable because I've written a lot, of, a lot of stories on the WikiLeaks database in terms of you know some of the records that are in there, specifically the, the Stratfor leaks. And the Unicorn Riot one is a lot easier to to sort through. A lot easier. Yeah. Well, it's because we use it a lot, too. So, like, every time you need a feature, um, you know, it's like one of those conditions. Like, it's a condition that we're often 
and you know we're using the same software tools that we want to improve so obviously one foot follows the other so what's next for unicorn riot do you have any other leaks coming <laughs> look the purpose of alt-right recruitment is always to get more members to get newer faces to to go to more you know flyering events the impact of our reporting has been that people are leaving this movement. You know, to some degree, like, it's not a thing that you want to be associated with. Um, so that's one, like, aspect of, like, what I think is important about our reporting. It's like, don't get involved with these groups because it's not going to go well for you. Um, the other thing is that we do have upcoming stories, and we're trying to figure out, like, one of the things that that's going to happen in like maybe the next few months is figuring out like how do we tell stories that actually um, sort of you know there are kind of meta stories here too right like it's not just a story about a Nazi uh, who's in you know there was a there was a identity Europa office uh, person who was a officer in the school um, those are not like different stories they're kind of the same story and, and they're linked in lots of different ways and so we're trying to figure out you know i think the next thing we're going to do is like tell stories about like what do these relationships actually look like um and there's a third story that is really like how do these all link together so the um person who shot up the mosque in new zealand um, he was sending money to Martin Snell, I think Snell is his name, who, who runs GI in Austria, um, who's very closely tied to Identity Europa. So then, then there's another narrative about like how closely are these things tied. I think the New York Times did a story about it today, um, about how these mass shootings are all sort of, there's, there are connections. Um, so Well, one I, inspires the other is what we know. And the internet has a lot to do with with. You know, the, I say the internet, but online chatter and different platforms really help that. I mean, the U.S. government or the you know the the language that law enforcement uses is they call them copycats, but it, they're not even copycats because they are all talking to each other, right? So yeah, so so we're trying to figure out like sort of how those networks work. Um, but but there are more stories coming. Um, so I if. Anyone's out there listening to this chat and is worried about like our future reporting. I, I would rec- I really strongly urge that like these are these groups are not obviously not healthy communities. They're like really wrapped up in like very racist, very violent actions, and like the best thing that anyone can do is like leave them. Um, and that's not like that's just like my personal viewpoint. So basically, um, any any neo Nazis who are listening right now, you might end up on a unicorn ride dump someday. <laughs> I mean, look, this is a personal viewpoint here. This is not me speaking for Unicorn Riot, but I certainly do believe that people can change and people can redeem themselves. I just don't think that there's anything in these communities that, that's worth holding on to. And our reporting is about telling like the actual factual argument, what's happening in the world, right? Um, I just, like, everything that we see in there is like, there's nothing good there. So I don't know why anyone would stick around with these groups. Well, I mean, keep up the great work. It seems like it's going in the right direction, and I'm sure this will not be the last time I hear about Unicorn Riot exposing a white nationalist group online by nuking them and showing all their chat logs and that they're full of shit. It is. Like, I would (laughs) love to be out of this line of reporting, um, but, you know, I suspect that it won't be the last time we talk, but uh, I'm going to hope that it is the last time we talk about this topic. Definitely. I 
don't believe it will be, but yes, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Freddie. Yeah, talk to you soon. And now, some more recent... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Recent big news in online white nationalism came via a giant scoop from Motherboard. We broke that Facebook would be undertaking an all-out ban of white nationalism on its platform. More on that from one of the architects of that scoop, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jason Kepler. So Jason, you're one of two reporters who might have broken one of the biggest stories I think Vice has ever had. You broke the scoop that Facebook would be outlying all white nationalism on its platform. Yeah, so with Joseph Cox, who's been on this show a few times, we have been... Can I first say that your beard is looking fantastic today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, It's It's getting long. Um, Yeah, so anyways, (laughs) we've been on this story for over a year now. Um, Around May of last year, Joseph Cox gained access to some of Facebook's internal content moderation documents. Uh, These are the PowerPoint slides that Facebook was giving to its individual content moderators, basically like the training slides, like here's what you should leave up, here's what you you should take down. Um, And on those documents, there is one specific slide that was like, or it it was one presentation that was like, after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, here's how Facebook handles white nationalism, white supremacy, and white separatism. And at the time, Facebook said, White supremacy and racism is banned on our platform, but white nationalism and white separatism are allowed, like explicitly allowed, do not remove it. And they defined white nationalism using literally the Wikipedia definition of white nationalism, which I don't have in front of me right now, but they pulled it directly from there. And they're like, their argument was that white nationalism and white separatism are not inherently hateful and that they are actually, could be inclusive. Which is like, just an absurd, this is something that keeps coming up with not just people, but tech companies. I mean, how do you, how can you justify, oh, I think being white is the best, that's not racist. Right, and it's it's because Facebook tries to treat all people the exact same without taking into account sort of like the history of racism or the history of power dynamics in the United States and in other like Western countries. So while you have white nationalism, which is like very inherently tied to white supremacy and very inherently tied to racism and segregation and slavery, you know, Facebook wanted to allow nationalism because they wanted to allow things like Basque nationalism, which is not really the same thing. I mean, Basque nationalism is absolutely not even close. Right. Well, Facebook's thinking was like, hey, if we banned white nationalism, we also have to ban black nationalism. We also have to ban Basque nationalism and all these other nationalist movements that are, you know, much smaller and also coming from groups that don't inherently have a lot of power that, like, unlike white nationalists and unlike, you know, the white race in the United States. So, I mean, obviously that's nonsense because you can Facebook can ban whatever it wants to ban. It's just that enforcing it is slightly more difficult because they have to, you know, make more rules. 
And so Facebook has many different rules. They're very specific. Um, there were like when we did this investigation, we found that there are dozens and dozens of, of examples like this, where it's like white nationalism is allowed, white separatism is, is allowed, but white supremacy is not. It's like what? Uh, yeah. So like a different example of this, and this is completely absurd, is that Facebook doesn't allow like nudity on its website. But it does allow breastfeeding mothers on its website because that's like, and it allows artistic depictions of nudity because there have been backlashes to people who have had photos taken down. So they get so specific as to say, you are not allowed to post anuses on Facebook. Like, like this is in their like an actual butthole. You're not yeah. allowed to post an actual butthole. Like, no anuses on Facebook unless it's a political commentary, which means that you are allowed to put. You're allowed to Photoshop anuses onto Donald Trump's face where his eyes are. This is an actual example with an actual photo. Like, that is allowed, and don't take that down. But then they have another example that has Kim Jong-un's face, and his mouth has been replaced by an anus, and there's a butt plug going into that anus, and that needs to be taken down. Because that is sexual content because it has a butt plug. (laughs) And it's like... This is, like, written in Facebook documents that are, like, sent to tens of thousands oh of moderators around the, uh, the world. And it's, like, and it's, it's an absurd example, but it's, like, these are the lines that Facebook is drawing. And this is how they are ultimately moderating free speech for over 2 billion people across the world. So you do this story. You stay on top of it in terms of, you know, you did some classic reporting. You stayed on top of the story. And then we fast forward to now. Yeah, so we published the story. We're like, hey, Facebook allows white nationalism. And obviously everyone was like, that is very bad. Um, you know, you had civil rights scholars, you had, um, you know, black history experts, and you had these civil society groups being like, these are not different things. Facebook shouldn't make the distinction. And they start putting pressure on Facebook. So they are like, hey, Facebook, you need to change this. This is very bad. And I think back in maybe September, we learned that Facebook was reconsidering this, like, it was reconsidering its stance. So we had a story that was like, hey, Facebook is reconsidering this, but we didn't know where they were ultimately going to land. So last week, we learned that Facebook finally did make a change, uh, and it is now treating white nationalism and white separatism the same as white supremacy, which brings it much more in line with the dominant thinking across these different groups. You know, one thing about this story that's interesting is, like, Facebook has not had a good year, uh, very clearly. And, and this was one of those things that it did where even I, and I'm, a, I'm definitely a Facebook hater, thought to myself, huh, that is the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, this is the right thing to do. Uh, I think the people that we talked to were like, why did it take so long? But also, like, thank God they finally did it. Um, and I will just sort of couch that in saying that this all depends on how Facebook actually ends up enforcing these policies because we do know like we do know that things like Unite the Right were organized on Facebook. We do know that there are openly white nationalists on Facebook who are organizing, who are in groups, who are talking to each other. And we know that they use a lot of code words. We know that they, uh, you know, have learned to evade Facebook's content moderators. And a good example of this is Facebook says that it's only going to ban explicit white nationalism and white separatism, and that basically finding implicit or coded versions of it 
and removing it is too difficult to do at scale. Like they're just unable, their moderators are not trained enough to be able to figure, figure that out. So they're just going to leave it up for the time being. And Huffington Post actually had a pretty good article. Yeah, Andy yeah. Campbell did a great, had a great story about uh, Faith Goldie, a Faith Goldie video. Yeah, so I don't know a whole lot about Faith Goldie. I think probably you know more. Can I do. You, she's, yeah. a t- uh, uh, she's a racist, white nationalist kind of troll from Canada. Um, she recently attacked one of our reporters online with a with a photo insult. I Mac Lambert, that, yeah. who's, a, who's a great reporter. You know, she's she's definitely someone who um, I think for a while she had on her Twitter profile like white nationalist. Yeah, she is an, an avowed white nationalist. Like that's the label that she uses, I mm-hmm. believe. So, you know, here is a great example of something that Facebook probably should remove under its policies. And she posted a video where she said like. I am a black nationalist, which I think was poking poking at Facebook's, you know, policy, saying that they're going to continue to allow black nationalism. And also said, uh, you know, white populations in white majority European Western countries are being, quote, replaced by non-white people, which I think is, a, you know, it's obviously referring to this conspiracy theory slash, like, yeah, I, I don't all, know what to call it, but, like, this idea of white genocide. All of it is actually, it's very much so... It's 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 referencing even though she doesn't realize it. She's referencing Mein Kampf. She's referencing Hitler's speech when she's saying stuff like that. That's right. what I find so insane about all this. Is like you, open a book, you'll see that what you're saying right now has historical precedence. Right, and and this is coming from like an avowed white nationalist. And Facebook said that this doesn't violate the policy and that they're leaving it up. And they told the Huffington Post that we followed up with them. They told us the same thing. So. I mean, on some level, it's very good. And, you know, for me personally, like, I am proud that we were able to, you know, report this story and cause Facebook to make a policy change. But ultimately, it's only going to be as good as as its enforcement. And if they're drawing such a narrow view of what white nationalism actually is, then it's not going to be that effective. I mean, the other thing, too, is the question is, if you have Facebook doing it, fine, and we'll see what the enforcement is. And that's obviously, you know, we won't know, in, at least for the next little while, exactly what it does. But, I mean, we already see it right now. Like, Twitter and YouTube, these other huge bastions of neo-Nazi militancy, not taking the harshest stance against it. Yeah, I mean... Not, not like you, they did ISIS. Yeah, you've had some great reporting on this as well, which... You know, you you reported that a lot of these uh, web hosts and podcast hosts have been taking down, uh, you know, the domain names or the servers of avowed neo-Nazis. And meanwhile, those same people are just regrouping on YouTube and Twitter. Yeah. I, and and the, the biggest offender to me in terms of not doing anything is YouTube. Yeah. They're, they're like, frankly, doing nothing. And then, but I think the, the crazy thing is, is when it was ISIS we saw a completely different attitude towards it, which kind of puzzles me. Yeah, I mean, yes, there was a completely different attitude toward it. And I everything, everything I say here is just kind of like speculation. But, you know, obviously YouTube and Twitter and Facebook are all American companies that, uh, you know, predominantly operate in English, like in their corporate setting, in their corporate world. Uh, they can take down ISIS content, and if they overreach on that, 
like they're not going to get the blowback that they're going to get if they overreach on sort of taking down like white nationalism or white separatism or white supremacy. Like you've seen here in the U.S., Facebook accidentally took down a Chick-fil-A appreciation page in 2014, I believe, and called it a hate group. And Facebook admitted that that was a mistake. And mistakes do happen because there's, you know, millions upon millions of posts on Facebook. And Ted Cruz, to this day, is like hating on Facebook, saying that they're biased against conservatives because of this decision made, presumably by one single person in 2014, like as a mistake. Whereas you're not going to get the same sort of pushback if, you know, you are taking down things that aren't quite ISIS, but they are, you know, in that realm or, you know, they're sort of like Muslim extremist type content that maybe doesn't rise to the level of like where if it was white nationalism, it wouldn't be taken down by YouTube or by Facebook. Like, like, do you get what I'm saying? Oh, no, I think it's, I, it's I, like I 100% get what you're saying. And I, this the is, political this is, blowback is this not going to be the, the this same. Is, this is the comparison I would draw. I, I think, I think the same reason Donald Trump doesn't come out and condemn white nationalist terrorism and actually even just admit that it's a thing is the same reason that you, you're not seeing YouTube and Twitter and some of these other companies coming down hard on these users. I think it's the same thing. It's, it's because ultimately, in some form or another, they need their support. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I think that when we reported that Facebook was taking this down, you had fringe figures, but not really like hardcore Nazis. So like, you know, these sort of like right figures who are not all the way right, but are kind of like, like the gateway. Candace Owens of the world. Yeah, exactly. Saying like, oh, like Facebook is coming for us next. Like this is a slippery slope. This is a bad thing. They're going to come after conservatives. And the blowback has been not quite as as strong as I thought it might be. But you can imagine, you know, YouTube taking down something like, you know, some of these larger influencers like Stephen Molyneux and even like Jordan Peterson on some level, like if they start taking down that sort of content, the blowback from their users is going to be ridiculous. And I think that they are being extremely cautious to the point that it's hurting them. Like in your reporting, we found that they are not taking down like actively neo-Nazi content. I mean, it's absurd. Like and then we, we sent them it. links. Yeah, they said, "Hey, we're demonetizing this. We're putting this behind like a content warning, click-through thing. We're removing likes. We're removing comments, but you can still find it on search, and it's still there. And they know that it exists, and they decided to leave it up. Exactly. I, I like. I don't. And these are the exact. These are the exact same people that you know. Uh, web hosts have already taken down. These are the same people. Like these are outright recitations of audiobooks, like the Siege audiobook, which is the uh, the essentially the, the manifesto, and, yeah, insurgency yeah. manual of of Adam Waffen Division. Right, and so I mean, this is violent content. This is actively hateful content. This isn't like debating race theory. It's like debating. It's like actively hateful and actively militant. Yeah, and yet it's still online. Yeah, I mean, I think that the platforms have a lot to answer for in the aftermath of Christchurch and Pittsburgh and all these other you know terror attacks that were linked to white supremacy. I think that it's you can't say that the internet definitely caused these attacks and definitely radicalized these people. I think there's just a lot of different 
aspects to that, but it's clearly one important part of the radicalization process, and it's clearly an important part of the like propaganda machine and the information machine, and the fact that they have done such a bad job of taking it down and that they haven't acted as quickly and as forcefully as they've acted with things like ISIS, it, it just demonstrates that they're scared of something. I agree completely. And I think I think this is more of a reflection of where we are socially and politically than just it's it's an internet thing. I think the internet's where we go to reflect on who we are and what we do and how we group together. And I think that the world has a much bigger problem with extremism than we'd like to think. And I think the internet obviously has a part to play in that. Yeah. I'm very interested to see where this goes because there was an interview in the New York Times with uh, YouTube's head of product, I believe, or head of policy. And, you know, his answers were were bad. Like, they it, were it terrible. Just, it's, they they were also just didn't address anything. Right. They don't seem to have a handle on the problem. They don't seem to have a handle on how bad this is. I mean, you have, like, PewDiePie, the most popular YouTuber, I believe still, uh, very close to the most popular YouTuber, is making videos that are, are gateways often to these ideologies. Like, if you stay on there and you click through the recommendations, like, the algorithm will eventually push you in this radical radicalizing path. And Facebook hasn't reckoned with its recommendation engine. It hasn't rec- reckoned with how it does search. And ultimately, it hasn't reckoned with how it deals with these popular but fringe figures that exist on its platform. No, it hasn't. And, and I... Honestly, this is me just being baffled that they haven't tried to. Because I think to me, like anybody else who saw what happened in Christchurch, and just to know the referencing that was going on from the terrorists and what he said, it was so obviously that he was, you know... He's at least in the mix online. He's in the mix online in a way that is much more than just a a passive viewer. And to think that there were figures involved with it that wouldn't be banned or you wouldn't look at something so horrific. I mean, watch the video yeah, yeah. that he I mean, posted. It's like, how could you not watch that and think to yourself, what can I do to stop someone from thinking these things? Yeah, I think if you want to learn more about what Facebook and YouTube and these companies value, you want to read the big Bloomberg story that was published earlier this week or last week, I guess, at this point, where uh, you know YouTube was chasing engagement mm-hmm. at all Costs. At all costs. Like, you know, people within YouTube were like, hey, there's a lot of bad stuff on our platform. Like, should we get rid of it? And, you know, the people at the top were like, well, bad stuff does well. People engage with it. People comment on it. People share it. And they were chasing engagement. So, by Twitter. Yeah, it's the same thing. And I think it's like, until that changes, these problems are going to continue to exist. Agreed. On that note. On that note. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast was recorded and edited by Dean White, produced by Jason Kebler, and voiced by yours truly, Ben Maku. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.